0: Dismiss our children for their junior church program and children's ministry. And as the children under 10 years and under are being dismissed, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning. Open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 29 and verse 15. The title of our message this morning is The Deceiver Gets Deceived. The Deceiver Gets Deceived. This is part of our ongoing study of the book of Genesis where God is at this point in the book of Genesis raising up a very special nation, the nation of Israel, through whom God will channel His blessings to the rest of the world, not the least of which is the coming of Jesus, whose coming and death and resurrection is so significant all the times of the year, but particularly this time of the year. Genesis 29 began with the arrival of Jacob in Haran, which is that top circle. He has left the land of Canaan. What The reason he has left the land of Canaan and traveled up north is he is essentially under the threat of death from his brother Esau, who he cheated and deceived in chapter 28. And so he moves up to Haran, and here he is seeking a wife. In fact, that was the excuse that was given by his mother to his father as to why Jacob fled. Get out of Canaan, don't marry a Canaanite, but marry someone from uh, your extended lineage. That's where Abram's descendants settled, up in Haran, and Jacob has arrived in Haran. He is actually staying now at the home of Lot. Lot is... Or Jacob, I should say, is Laban's nephew. I think I misspoke there. Did I say Lot? Yeah, I think I meant to say Laban. Well, they both start with L, so can't fault me too much. Jacob is Laban's nephew. There we go. And so that's where, um, as we were looking at this verse by verse last time, this is where Jacob is. And now, what we discover, this verses 15 through 30, after Jacob arrives in Haran, is his marriages, plural. By the way, we don't recommend that, but this is how it worked out in Jacob's life. So we have a marriage contract between Jacob and Laban, verses 15 through 19, and then the subsequent marriages, verses 20 through 30 we will only be getting through at the very, very best and most optimistic uh, count here up to verse 25 today. Notice this uh, marriage contract. We have Jacob's, or excuse me, Laban's inquiry. Genesis chapter 29, verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing tell me what shall be your wages so Jacob is staying at the home of Laban you see that at the end of verse 14 Jacob doesn't want to be kind of I don't know a freeloader so to speak he wants to work for wages and so Laban gives an inquiry to Jacob name your price And then we get a discussion of Laban's daughters, because Jacob, as we will see, has fallen in love with one of the two. Who are Laban's daughters? We see their names given in verse 16, and notice what it says there, Genesis 29, verse 16. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. So the older one is Leah, and um, gosh, I hate to say this, but her name actually means wild cow. (laughs) It could also mean antelope, so I guess antelope would be a better fit there. The younger one is named Rachel, and her her name actually means a ewe lamb. And the distinctive features of these two daughters is given in verse 17 and it says Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Apparently Leah had what the Bible calls tender eyes, um, weak eyes, weak eyesight of some sort. There's a lot of speculation as to exactly what This was, nobody knows for sure. Rachel, by contrast, was beautiful in face and figure. No major deformities. And we have the wages given there in verse 18. Jacob names his price. It says, verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said to Laban, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Pretty clear here. I serve you for seven years and I get the younger one that I'm in love with. The interesting thing about this is not only did Jacob love Rachel, in fact, we know Jacob loved Rachel because verse 20 in addition, talks about how Jacob loved Rachel. But he exhibited what we would call true biblical love. The young people within the sound of my voice contemplating marriage need to understand this. They need to understand what true biblical love is. True biblical love always relates to Sacrifice. It relates to not what you can get, but what you give. And you might be with somebody, maybe engaged to someone, and they might be talking the greatest game that you've ever heard. But the truth of the matter is you have to look deep into their character because you are contemplating spending the rest of your life with this person are they really in love with me or not? And you can tell if they're in love with you, not based on what they're taking or how they're sounding, but what they're giving. You'll notice here that Jacob was willing to give. He was willing to give seven years of his life for Rachel, whom he loved. Now, in that same area, you'll remember Genesis chapter 24, when the servant of Abraham came and received Rebekah and brought her back to Isaac, he paid a price. There was an actual bridal price that was paid. Jacob, has he's fleeing. He's a refugee, so to speak. He doesn't seem to have any resources, no great resources that we know of. So this is actually his bridal prize. I'm going to serve seven years. And Laban is going to give me, in return for that, Rachel. True love. Not based on what it can get, but based on what it can give. Love, biblically, is very different than lust. Lust is interested in what it can get. Love, biblically speaking is always interested in what it can give. You don't have to look very far in the Bible to see this, the agape love of God, which is not eros love, romanticism. It's not phileo love, brotherly kindness. It's not storgas love, meaning love within families. It is a word that the Greek text uses to describe love. It is agape. Not sloppy agape, but true agape. The deepest level of love you can have for a person, which is demonstrated not in what it takes, but what it gives. Look no further than the love of God for us. John chapter 3, verse 16, a verse we all know. For God so loved the world that He gave. Look at that. doesn't say God so loved the world that He took. God so loved the world that He gave. His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates, demonstrates. His own love, agape, towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, we just celebrated the Lord's table, thinking about the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why in the world would he go through that sacrifice? It's very simple. It is agape. It is true love. The type of love that you see Jacob manifesting for Rachel, a willingness... To sacrifice. So Laban and Jacob agree. Laban agrees. Verse 19. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. Now, if you drop back to verse 14, you remember last week it says, Laban said to him, Jacob, surely you are bone, my bone and my flesh. In other words, it's better that she marries within her own, then somebody that doesn't even know the things of God at all would marry her. The contract leads to the two marriages. And the reason there's two marriages here, as we're going to read, and as you probably know the story, Jacob is deceived. Jacob is deceived by Laban. Laban. He thinks he's getting Rachel, but he ends up getting Leah first. The deceiver is deceived. So that section begins with Jacob making reference to the seven years of labor for Rachel. And notice what verse 20 says. And notice how love manifests itself in verse 20 so jacob served seven years for rachel and he complained the whole time no it doesn't say that he complained about the sacrifice he was making the whole time boy i hope this woman really knows what she's getting you know that's not what that's not his attitude it's it's selfless So Jacob served Laban for Rachel, and look at this, and they seemed to him but a few days. Why was that? Because of his love for her. People, as you know, are throwing around the word love all of the time today in our culture. It's a little bit tricky because the Greeks had four words for love. We only have one. I mean, I've watched The Love Boat, so I must be an expert on love. <laughs> and most of the time, and I'll just be completely honest, folks, we don't even have the foggiest idea what we're talking about. If you want to understand what love is, there's a chapter in your Bible called the Love Chapter. 1 Corinthians Chapter 13. And I won't read the whole chapter to you, but... In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it talks about the nature of love, it says there, love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. A fascinating study on the attributes of love, but right out of the gate it says love is patient. Lust is impatient. Love is patient. That's how, that's how a man could serve seven years for the hand of a woman and they just seemed to him like the passing of a few days. That's how you really know if someone is in love with you. That is how you know if you're in love, biblically speaking, with somebody else. Today we're focused on outer appearance. We're focused on emotions. Does he or she give me the liver quiver or not kind of thing? (laughs) What kind of money does he or she bring in? Are they going to bring me security? All of these issues, I mean, and I'm not saying those are unimportant issues. I'm just saying that they have nothing to do with love. Love will always manifest itself not in what you're going to get out of a relationship, it's what you could give. And if someone is pressuring you constantly, you have to at some point wonder, is the person really in love with me or not? And by the way, if they're keeping a record of everything you've ever done wrong, um, I'm sorry, but 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. You know, there are countless people out there that could be saved from a lot of nonsense in terms of who they're going to marry by just reading the Bible. Because the Bible will tell you if with somebody you're on the right track or you're not on the, on the right track. I, I so much appreciate the pragmatic nature of the Bible. Love is patient. Love sacrifices. Here is Jacob serving Laban for seven years. And all it really says is it seemed like just a few days because of his love for, for Rachel. But unfortunately, the deceiver gets deceived here. And it's interesting to me that God allowed him to be deceived at something that was probably the most important to him, this relationship. Because God is in the business of showing us when we cheat somebody, when we deceive people, when we lie, God many times, and I've experienced this many times in my life, will send you into the identical situation where you're the one getting ripped off. And it's like the Holy Spirit is saying, okay, how do you think that feels? Do you like how that feels? No. Then maybe you shouldn't have done what just happened to you to somebody else earlier in your life. Because what you're involved in is sin. And you need to understand the consequences of sin. Now, you can learn that from a textbook a little bit, I guess. You maybe can learn about it from a theologian. You can maybe learn about it from a good sermon. But nothing will teach you that lesson than suffering at the identical point where you inflicted suffering on another. We just got out of chapter 27. Well, we didn't just get out of chapter 27. It was a few months back, but we did get out of chapter 27. And that was the chapter, and you all know this, it's the... Jacob deceiving Esau, Jacob deceiving Isaac. Esau has found out about it. This is why Jacob has had to flee Canaan and go to the land of Haran. Jacob was involved in deception. He was involved in underhandedness. Well, gee, Jacob, that's not a nice thing to do to somebody. Yeah, I know that. And God says, okay, now you're going to live it on the opposite end. So you can learn firsthand what it's like to be treated unfairly in something that's very, very precious to you. As you walk through the valleys of life as a Christian, you need to be sensitive to that because I believe God will deliberately send his people into tribulations and trials for our growth and betterment. And I'm not saying this in every case, but it very well could be that the circumstances you're in right now are the identical circumstances that you inflicted on somebody else, and God is teaching us a lesson. He's using this to mold our character into the Christ-like character that He desires it to have. And so we see this marriage now to Leah. And it begins with Jacob has finished serving for seven years and he makes a demand on Laban. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my time is completed that I may go into her. In other words, I've done my seven years. My days are fulfilled. And he thinks he's, he's marrying Rachel, which he's not marrying Rachel, as we'll see. He's marrying Leah. So you see the wedding festivities, verse 22, Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. In the uh, Middle East, it was common to have a seven-day wedding feast prior to the wedding night. The wedding ceremony. So those festivities are happening there. And then we have the wedding night. And you see that in verse 23. And this is where the deceiver is now deceived. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah. That would be Laban doing this. And brought her to him. And Jacob went into her. Sexual union Between Jacob and Leah. The deceiver is deceived. Arnold Fruchtenbaum masterfully sums this up. Because what is actually happening to Jacob is very near circumstances to the deception he himself caused back in chapter 27. Fruchtenbaum says, now the deceiver is deceived, although the motivations differ from good to bad. There is divine retribution in four ways. First, Isaac's blindness equals the darkness of Jacob's wedding night and neither could see well as a result. Jacob was underhanded in chapter 27 because of the poor eyesight of his father. And notice the same thing is now happening to him because it's dark, it's the wedding night, He thinks he's getting Rachel when in reality he's getting Leah. He doesn't know any better because of the darkness physically of the situation. First, Isaac's blindness equals the darkness of Jacob's wedding night and neither could see well as a result. Second, this Jacob is deceived by being presented the older for the younger. The reversal of Isaac's presentation of Jacob for Esau. So the older and the younger theme is happening here, just in reverse. Third, Isaac thought Jacob was Esau, and Jacob thought that Leah was Rachel. Fourth, Jacob pretended to be his older brother. That's in chapter 27, while Leah pretended to be her younger sister. Poetic justice. The book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life there is an agricultural principle at work when paul wrote those words in the book of galatians chapter 6 verses 7 and 8 that all of his readers understood because this is an agrarian backdrop In the 21st century, we're less familiar with these type of agrarian principles because a lot of us are not involved in direct farming and things of that nature. Now, some of you, without in the sound of my voice, have that in your background, and you understand exactly what this principle is. It's the principle of sowing and reaping. You put an apple seed into the ground, and what do you expect to get in return? An apple tree. You're not going to get a lemon tree. Because you reap what you sow. What you plant comes up in the harvest. If you don't plant anything, you get no harvest. If you plant something negative, you get a negative crop. If you plant something positive, you get a positive crop. Paul brings this up because the Galatians were not financially supporting biblically sound preachers and teachers. And so Paul says, you reap what you sow. If you're not going to financially get behind a sound preacher and teacher, and by the way, uh, we have no big financial emergency here, so this is not turning into please give kind of thing. (laughs) Just giving you the context of what's happening here. If you're not going to do that, then you're not going to have any Bible teaching. You're not going to have any Bible preaching. And you're not going to be supporting someone who can give themselves to studying the Word of God. And you're going to experience a very low level of Christian living because of it. Because you will not financially get behind people that are teaching sound doctrine. You're going to reap what you sow. On the other hand, if you share all good things with he who instructs you, then that person has the time necessary to be freed from other responsibilities, like making a living elsewhere, and they can study the word of God and give themselves to teaching and proclaiming the word of God, which is for everybody's good because we all mature under the truth of God's word. He's not saying y'all aren't saved or something like that. What he's saying is you reap what you sow. You don't want to sow, you're gonna get a low level of Christian instruction, you're gonna, and as a result, you're gonna have a low level of Christian living. It's an agricultural principle that God established. That's why it says God is not mocked. If you can violate the law of sowing and reaping, which God established, then you suddenly are an exception to a rule that God made and God himself is mocked because his law doesn't mean anything. It's a principle that works both ways. I mean, you can invest your life into totally carnal things as a Christian. Your salvation may be intact. Once saved, always saved. But there are negative consequences that are going to start showing up in your life. They have nothing to do with sending a person to hell. What they have to do with is you cannot violate a law of God without suffering some sort of temporal consequence. Take the law of gravity as an example. I can't wake up one day and say, you know what, this law of gravity thing, I'm just not going to follow it today. I think I'll throw myself off my roof. (laughs) I don't really care for your law of gravity today, Lord. I'm going to do things my own way. Well, we know what's, that's going to, how that's going to end. It's going to result in broken bones and hurt bodies because you broke a law that God established. This principle of sowing and reaping applies to the child of God and to the unsaved. And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean the law of sowing and reaping doesn't apply to you. And if you don't believe me, g- drive out of here about 85 miles an hour. I mean, look where you're going first, but don't hurt anybody. We don't want to cause some grave ex- experiment here that results in somebody getting hurt. But, well, let's let's do it this way. Let's just do this hypothetically. You hypothetically drive out of here 85 miles an hour, the police officer pulls you over. And he says, roll down your window, and you can't say to the police officer, well, gee, officer, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I mean, obviously that excuse is not going to work because you violated a principle that applies across the board. Jacob is experiencing what he is experiencing here. The deceiver is being deceived because God is allowing him to experience these things because he's violated the law of sowing and reaping. I'm not saying here, you know, Jacob is not saved. Jacob is not going to heaven. I'm not saying anything like that. But temporal consequences await when we do things like this and god many times allows us to experience these temporal consequences because he's trying to bring us to a higher level of sanctification gee if, if deception hurts that bad maybe i shouldn't be involved in it at all maybe maybe i'll after coming out of that maybe i'll ask the lord lord that was so painful i never want to do that to another person again And God says, excellent, that's the response I was looking for. Conversely, you sow good seed, you reap wonderful consequences. There are a lot of wonderful things that are happening right now in my life because I put good seed into the ground decades ago. And the opposite is true. There are some things that are happening in my life today that I wish weren't there. Because in those instances, I put some bad seed into the ground. You reap what you sow. We have this uh, mindset that we're sort of pulling one over on God. God doesn't see Well, if God doesn't see and somehow we're exempted from the law of sowing and reaping, then God himself is mocked because his laws have no force. Numbers 32.23 says, But if you will do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure. Certainty. Be sure, Numbers 32, 23, be sure that your sin will find you out. You might be able to fool people. can't fool God. Jacob thought he was probably getting away with something. As Isaac and, excuse me, Jacob and uh, Rebecca hatched this plan to deceive Isaac and Esau. He wasn't getting away with anything. God put him in the identical circumstances that he created for somebody else. Why? Because whom the Lord loves, the Lord what? Chastens. God loves you too much to see you, to see us, get by without growing up. Well, yeah, but pastor, doesn't God love me as I am? Yes, he does. But he loves you too too much to see you stay as you are nobody as far as i can tell unless they're completely and totally resisting the holy spirit which i guess is possible none of us are going to get by without growing up you know growing up as far as i can tell is really not optional and if a person doesn't want to grow up, society has all kinds of ways of kicking them to move them in the right direction. Probably the last step on the road is is the police and prison confinement. Which is what you see in prisoners. You know, it's interesting they did a they did a study on people who have the highest self esteem in society. You know the people that have the highest level of self esteem? Prison inmates. Do prison inmates need ministry? Yes, they do. But a lot of times what you see in those circumstances and situations is a bunch of people, adults, and they're in the circumstances they're in because they decided to act like a child. They just wouldn't grow up. God doesn't want us in that circumstance. You know, a, a, a child sucking on their thumb is cute when the child is, what, age one, age two, something like that, once the child is 16, it loses its cuteness. I mean, we're not dealing anymore with age-appropriate activity. I'm 56 years old. If I'm still lying in my crib, I don't know how they'd make a crib my size, but <laughs> it, it's not cute anymore. It's, it's, it's not age-appropriate. Something is wrong. And, and yet that's how a lot of people are in their spiritual life. So God loves us too much to see us stay in a state of immaturity, so he'll allow us to experience the law of sowing and reaping. Where we, and what's important to us, we get deceived on the same plane where we earlier deceived somebody else. This is what's happening in the, the life of Jacob. You have a wedding gift verse 24 Genesis 29:24 Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So so Zilpah as a maid is part of the package here. Keep your eye on Zilpah because through Jacob and Zilpah is going to come two tribes of Israel. We'll see that in the next chapter, Gad and Asher. Why this wedding gift? How come Zilpah gets thrown into the mix? Notice what Arnold Fruchtenbaum says. He says in verse 24, the wedding gift, and Laban gave Zilpah, meaning nearness or intimacy, his handmaid unto unto his daughter Leah for a handmaid. Well, why do that? This practice is in keeping with what is known from the Nuzi tablets. Have you been doing your devotional life lately in the Nuzi tablets? What are the Nuzi tablets? Here's an explanation I found online. The Nuzi tablets are clay tablets that were discovered near Kirkuk, Kirkuk, Iraq, in the 1920s. They date back to the mid Second millennium B.C., the general time period when these patriarchal narratives are unfolding, when Nuzi was part of the Hurrian Mitanni Empire. They contain family archives and legal documents that shed light on everyday life and customs of the Haranians and their neighbors in Mesopotamia. Some of these customs, such as the tablets of sistership, may have parallels with the biblical patriarchs who lived in the same region several hundred years earlier. Why can't we go to a normal church and have a normal pastor (laughs) who doesn't dump this kind of information on us? I mean, just give me the three points and a poem and let's get out of here. (laughs) Well, as I've said over and over again, the reason I'm bringing this up is I'm trying to demonstrate that the book of Genesis took place in a historical context which is credible. The Bible is credible. When um, Laban gave to Leah and Jacob Zilpah, it fits exactly with what we know of the customs of the day. Why bring this up? Because you're living in a culture and a society which is trying to tell you that this book is nothing but a bunch of myths. In fact, if you believe what's in here, you've almost committed intellectual suicide. Because true history, we do in the classroom, public school. You, you guys just go ahead and do your religion. The truth of the matter is, when you're reading the Bible, you're not reading a book about religion. You're reading a historical text that is historically credible and historically accurate. God used real history to narrate to us or give to us spiritual truths and spiritual lessons. This is not veggie Tales. This is not Jack and the Beanstalk. This is history. And I will put it up toe to toe. I will go toe-to-toe on this, face-to-face with any other historian who says this is not a historical account. This is history. It it cooperates with the Newsy tablets. It cooperates with countless other extra-biblical documents. Of the time period. When God asks you to put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, He is not telling you to turn your brain off. After all, we are to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. For God to bypass the mind. For Him to bypass logic, reason, archaeology, history, Apologetics, defense of the faith, which is what we're dealing with here, for God to bypass all of those things would be for Him to not respect how He's made you. He's made you, yes, an emotional being, and the Bible will help you with many emotional issues, but He gave you a mind. It's a powerful tool that God has given you to reason, to think. And so why would God, with His revelation, bypass the mind? He doesn't bypass the mind. He respects the mind. That's why He gave us the mind. So when you trust in Christ as your Savior, you are not taking a leap into a dark chasm. You know, you compare this, for example, to Islam, where earthquakes are explained as the fact that the earth is on the back of an animal. And the reason there are earthquakes is the animal is moving. That's the explanation in Islamic holy books for earthquakes. I mean, you want to talk about, and I don't mean to just start tearing into other belief systems or philosophies, but you want to talk about a, a, a belief system that tells you to turn aside your, from your intellect, that would be it. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but all of the bodies of science, every single one of them, Isaac Newton included, all the bodies of science were started by people that believe that this book is true. Well, I need some documentation on that, Pastor. Great. Read the book, Men of Science, Men of God, by Henry Morris page after page after page of documentation showing biblicism in all of the founders of the major areas of science. I I get so tired of people saying, oh, you Christians are anti-science. What are you even talking about, sir? Do you have no awareness of where the major bodies of science come from? God does not bypass... The intellect, he does not bypass the mind. That's why we bring things like this up. God respects the mind. Now, our mind in its darkened state frequently doesn't think the right way. We have to start thinking the right thing the way about God. But this is a process, Romans 12 verse 2, called the renewing of the mind. That's what's happening Lord willing, here now, as we're preaching and teaching through this material, bringing up these historical circumstances and background. We end here with verse 25, with Jacob's discovery. He's married to the wrong woman. He just had sexual union with the wrong woman. Verse 25, so it came about in the morning that behold it, this is Jacob's discovery, it was Leah. You'll notice that Jacob did not come to an understanding of the fact that he had been deceived until it was daylight. And one of the things that would happen in the ancient Near East as the wedding night happened at night is the bride. Was veiled. And that becomes another reason why Jacob thought she was Rachel when in reality she was Leah. But the daylight has a tendency to expose the deception. That's the function of light. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8 says, For you were formerly. In darkness but now you are in the light in the Lord walk as children of light what did Jesus uh, claim to be John 8 I think it's verse 12 I am the light of the world How do we function as children of light? Ephesians 5.11 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. God's purpose for our lives is to bring us into the light. It's only when you come into the light that you can see things for what they are. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, You are the light of the world. We are to reflect and emulate that light to the rest of the world. That's why we're here. And by the way, don't expect the world to stand up and applaud when you become a light bearer. Because when you're accustomed to the darkness and someone flips on or flicks on the light switch, it's uncomfortable. Just like salt. We're not just light, but we're salt. We're salt and light. Salt can be... A tremendous irritant, but it's necessary as a preservative. Light can be a tremendous annoyance, but it's necessary so that you and those around you don't walk in total spiritual darkness. Jacob was in a state of total deception and darkness until the morning came and the light came on and he could see what had happened to him. Jesus made a very interesting statement in John 3, verses 19 through 21. He said, this is the judgment, this is the verdict, legal language, that light has come into the world. Now, you would think that when light, the light of Jesus came into the world, the world would stand up and say, yay! That's not what happened. That's not what happened through His crucifixion and sham trials, which we ruminate on, contemplate on this week. Why why wasn't the world just excited and thrilled that Jesus was here? John 3, 19-21 says, This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. That's why Jesus had a very difficult time getting along with a lot of folks. They love the darkness and they love their sin. For everyone, John 3.20, who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I hope this week, as God is shining the searchlight of truth on every facet of your life, you're not going to suppress the light. And you're going to come into the light. And you say to the Lord, Lord, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed about my thought patterns. I'm embarrassed about or I let my emotions go, expose it. Which is the first step that's necessary to learning to live not like that anymore. Because the Jesus that exposes will also give you the help you need this week. To say no to sinful patterns and yes to the things of God. Don't expect, as we are light bearers, that the world is going to applaud us. The world is not going to applaud us any more than it applauded Jesus himself. But yet the light is necessary, as irritating as it is, or else planet Earth will continue to grope in the darkness that it is in. So Jacob comes to the light, the deceiver has been deceived, and yet this is necessary for his growth. The problem is he got Leah and he wanted Rachel. Is that problem going to get fixed? Well, come back in two weeks and we'll talk about it. I say two weeks because next week is Resurrection Sunday. Don't you like that name better than Easter Rather than Ishtar, Easter, why don't we just call it Resurrection Sunday. Amen. We'll be doing a special sermon on the resurrection of Jesus next week. And the following week we'll see what happened with Rachel. There's a happy ending here. Because he does get Rachel in the end. Sometimes the best things in life are worth waiting for. Amen. If you're here today and you don't know Christ personally, our exhortation as we've shared the Gospel at the Lord's table, Jesus stepping out of eternity into time to fix a problem that we can't fix. We've presented the Gospel, Jesus' final words on the cross where it is finished. There's nothing left for a human being to do that's lost or something you can add to the finished work of Jesus. You can only receive what he's done as a gift. The Bible teaches there's only one way to receive a gift from God is to believe in the one that he has sent. You'll see that in Romans 4, 4 and 5, John 6, 28 and 29, that's why what's coming to you when you trust in Christ related to salvation is a gift. If it was something you had to work for, it couldn't be a gift, could it? My daughter is getting ready to drive. (laughs) You can pray for me. And let's just say, hypothetically, I went out and bought her a brand new BMW. Hopefully she's not here. And then um, she gets in the BMW, and I say to her, it's a free gift. And I say, oh, by the way, um, here's your payment schedule. It's not a gift anymore. A lot of people present the gospel that way. It's a free gift, but here's all the works you got to do to keep what you have. That's not what the gospel is. It's a gift because Jesus did it all. And we just invite people within the sound of my voice to receive it by placing their trust alone in Jesus. It's not something you have to raise a hand to do, join a church to do, walk an aisle to do, give money to do. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Lord convicts you of your need to receive this. And you respond by trusting which is another word for saying believing, in the completed work of Jesus Christ. If it's something that you need help on or more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for Resurrection Sunday. We're grateful for Good Friday. We're grateful that we have this time on our calendar where we can think about these things. Help us not just to be thinkers, but help us to walk these things out this week in a spirit of servanthood and Christ-likeness as we reach out to the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said,